You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, February 21st, 2022. This is episode number 220. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 26,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Michigan gets a smoking lounge, Arizona looks at stricter packaging rules, Amsterdam coffee shops during COVID, an effort to get more black real estate professionals into the industry, a potential Supreme Court Judge Michelle Childs prohibitionist past, illegal operation in Oregon may get offenders life in prison, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She's a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. Her brief incarceration earned her the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Um, My headline today actually comes out of the Los Angeles Times, and it's a a bit of a burner, literally. Um, I guess maybe, uh, I don't know if this would be a trigger warning, but illegal butane marijuana lab explodes near the Knott's Berry Farm, four injured, including two firefighters. And crazily enough, I was right over in this area when it happened, um, buying some plants at a nursery right around the corner. Um, an illegal butane marijuana lab exploded in a commercial building in Anaheim near Knott's Berry Farm on Sunday, injuring at least four people, including two firefighters. Police responded to an emergency call at 11.22 a.m. of a structure fire about three blocks east of Knott's Berry Farm in Buena Park, says Anaheim Police Sergeant Steve Pena. Orange County firefighters rushed to the scene at 11.69 Knollwood Circle and worked at extinguishing the blaze that quickly engulfed the building, sending a high into the air clouds of black smoke, which were visible for miles. Two firefighters battling the battle were injured when the lab exploded and were rushed to the hospital. Pena says uh, one had a second-degree burn on the uh, side of his face and the other suffered a back injury when the explosion pushed him into the oxygen tank. Two male suspects were inside the business when the fire started. One was severely injured and transported to a local hospital, he said. The other two suspect, the other suspect who was not injured was detained cooperating with the investigation. At least one person from another business was transported to the hospital as well. He did not know the exact extent of their injuries. Now, this is um, a quote from the police officer. It was uh, a honey oil butane extraction lab, which is an illegal operation, Pena says. They're dealing with chemicals and whatnot. So whatever they're doing inside there, well, it started a fire. 
By 2.30 p.m., Pena said firefighters had largely extinguished the fire, but there are still some hot spots that remained. Authorities cannot go in because it is currently still too hot due to the gases. Uh, in such a makeshift lab, hash oil, known as honey oil, is often commonly extracted from the marijuana plants using butane, which is a colorless, highly flammable gas commonly used as lighter fuel fuel for cooking and camping, authority says. Vapors for, uh, from butane can be released as glass cl- gas clouds, and the mere spark of static electricity can set off a fiery explosion. Now, this is not false. Uh, the makeshift hash labs utilizing butane are a huge danger. People absolutely should not be doing this without the proper evacuation, uh, as well as all of the proper uh, airflow necessary to be prop- to be running butane or propane. Um, I, I, they definitely often mistake and uh, switch the two. He basically was talking about propane. Propane is an option for extraction labs, and there might have been propane in this facility. A lot of labs will do a blend of a butane and a propane um, because propane does have a better solvency. Uh, But to say that this was an illegal operation is definitely for sure because there are no extraction facilities currently in Buena Park, and I'm curious to see, and I'm very hopeful that everybody turns out to be okay. I'm really sorry to hear that any firefighters were injured or anybody was injured for that matter. But just another reason why we got to make sure when we are running these extraction labs that we're doing it above above board. You know, I'm all for growing your own weed, but I am definitely not for making your own butane hash in your garage. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Way to go, idiots. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. Is it just do they have to call out hazmat for uh, things like this? It depends. Probably not, but sometimes they they do depending on how much gas is there. Um, it's not likely that they would have enough, but but it's possible. But also, it's really shitty how close it was to Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah, totally possible to call out hazmat, but um, depending on um, you know that particular agency. Good good point, Nicole. But also, Buena Park should totally have uh, cannabis businesses. They, this this is uh, something that they should be doing. Um, they've got a decent amount of uh, space that, that needs to be rented over there as well. Open up the market and end prohibition. Well, up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz is a biodynamic biologist, botanist, and cannabis health liaison. What do you have for us today, Liz? My story today comes from Tulsa World. The headline reads, Medical Cannabis Lab makes lawmaker, sorry, helps lawmakers seeking guidance on bills to make Oklahoma's cannabis safer. So last October, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, which is OMA, uh, their quality testing found THCO acetate in a concentrate and sent a warning to Oklahoma patients. This did not trigger a recall because it's not a substance that is tested for in labs. So in 2022, for the 2022 session, as bills begin to be considered, Representative Kevin McDougall, uh, who's a Republican of Broken Arrow, requested a proposal for interim House study that could be considered in the Oklahoma legislature. James Rudy of Genesis Testing Labs, he's the medical director, said our main proposition is to identify those contaminants and then on the second phase to come up with means, standardized operating procedures that anyone can use and all the materials to generate the same results. Labs say that they appreciate the ability to share concerns of a smaller industry with less lobbying power as compared to cultivators and manufacturers. Genesis's lab's um, first proposal comes from their own work on the ground finding THCO acetate and other synthesized compounds that are not currently testing for, and they want to use their experience to help uh, streamline this process. So the director of the lab oversight for OMA, Lee Rhodes, said the agency has done an analysis to determine the priority for the industry. Is it contaminants or is it THC potency? They say, of course, we've been hearing a while that THC variability is the big issue and that data bore out, but they are concerned about these other THC analogs and the variability and potency especially as they're not naturally occurring compounds. Um, THC acetate was actually spray uh, developed in spray form during post-World War II U.S. military research. So they're seeing that a lot of chemists are using, um, I mean, chemist opportunities have been spraying cannabis products with these cannabinoids to result in higher THC potencies. So, and then obviously, as we know, there's a lot of lab shopping. Growers can choose to pay different labs that generate better quality results to get uh, larger uh, payment for their harvest. But this needs to go a lot farther. 
and you know the patient's health in Oklahoma is so important. So they are focusing on this. This is um, baby steps moving forward. This is not set yet, but there's a lot of concerns um, in Oklahoma, and it's great that they care about their patients and are working to standardize this. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour on this uh, President's Day, where I'm pretty sure it's Monday. So look forward to hear what you guys have to say about this. Best thing that um, uh, governments can do is just get rid of the prohibitions. Just say we're not going to arrest anyone, and then you know come up with real regulations with research. Oh, he can't come up. Okay. Well, I I think they need to. Um, good morning and afternoon, everyone. I think this is a, a good first step. I would like to see more individuals from multiple specialties uh, collaborate on legislation instead of just the cannabis companies with all the big bucks. You need the physicians and the labs and, and everyone to have some input. Um, I, I think that that would be very helpful. And the activists. I yes. think that this... You need to have, have antiquated testing protocols in place. And that way, if you take a sample to one lab, you're going to get the same result from another lab instead of what you currently have today with this hodgepodge of mismatched uh, cannabis testing results. And, and there should be standardization of labs uh, oversight with surprise visits so that we know that everybody's playing by the same rules. Surprise. So like a federal lab, an FDA. Yes, yeah, something like that. No, the labs just need to adhere to the federal code. Um, and if they adhere to the federal code, the lab testing certification there, there, there is, is no a federal, whole lot better. There is no federal code for cannabinoids in the regards to how they would be testing. It's literally the issue that we have right now. The difference between utilizing an HPLC, high-pressure liquid or a GC, gas chromatograph, is uh, across the state as to which machine you even have to use. They're, the different assays, which are the actual pl- the uh, scientific formula of what it is they're testing against, the standardization are coming from three or four different labs. There's not yet a standardization on the assize because it's still federally illegal. I'm going to go back to deschedule or motherfucking bust, y'all, because until that, we will never have a completely unified system from state to state. So if you go one state to another, you're going to be having a different regulation and a different method of testing. So it seems like this might be one of the major hurdles in federal legalization. If that's correct. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a hurdle if, if as so much as giving a standard would give us an, something to understand that it's based on this specific standard because that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, this is that would not be a hurdle. It would it's, not be a it, hurdle at all. It would be easier to accomplish than yep. the, the social equity banking yep. situation. Absolutely. We could get it done overnight that this specific thing, the, the labs are evolved enough. The other countries that are doing this, we could literally mimic what's happening in Israel or, or what's happening in Germany. There's a, quite a few countries that are doing it very well, um, but it's not us. Uh, Leslie, we've got Leslie up from the audience. Leslie Fries, would you like to weigh in? Yeah, um, I'm just wondered what everyone thought about uh, maybe adopting the hemp labs, um, you know, uh, policy and standards uh, going towards marijuana. I know not all the states have very well developed uh, standards, but some states out there do. I mean, some states have some really well-developed standards for cannabis, too. It just the idea would be uniform. And I, I feel the same conversation, even though we have the, the farm bill, there still isn't uh, the federal standards for what that looks like for cannabinoids yet, as we are always regularly battling about this CBD Delta-8 you know, conversation and whether or not you're allowed to sell it. So I, I'm confused uh, as to what you would even be referencing in regards to uh, of hemp lab standards because they're still not regulated. If we all. use the, if, if we use the hemp lab standards, we wouldn't be able to test anything higher than 0.3 THC. Well, the thing I was thinking about the hurdle is that every state has their own laws and everybody wants that. So that was what I thought as the hurdle. But this is a great conversation. Thank you so much, you guys. I know that we're at time, so let's go ahead and move on to the next story. So we get to hear this juice. I just I just want to say, don't spray anything on my cannabis, please. Rico, you want to try again? Yeah, can you guys hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? We hear yes. you loud and yeah. clear. Okay. Okay, Michelle. So much better. Much better. All right, y'all. Uh, so let me go back to my story. Oak Impact Group's Eric Murray aims to bring more black real estate brokers and developers into the cannabis industry. Is it okay to be a Chad in the cannabis industry if you're black? That's a trick question. Chads are privileged white males. Like the term racist, as Michelle Alexander says, describes 
a discriminatory individual whose views and actions come from a position of power. That ain't us. Black people are forced to operate in the flawed game of American-style capitalism, a system meant to profit off a foundation laid at the expense of black bodies. It was never meant to benefit us. But like basketball, football, golf, tennis, baseball, shit, any other competition on the highest levels with rules created and regulated by our melanin-deficient peers, given the opportunity, we can and will dominate that shit. 2016, Kansas City native and commercial real estate veteran Eric Murray moved to Oakland. He says relocating to the birthplace of the Black Panthers um, and getting into cannabis awakened a new fight in him. For the article, he originally aimed at bringing more black people into real estate, but his purpose widened to social equity. So he and his team started Oak Impact Group, a VC firm intersecting real estate and social impact. Two years later, it became one of the first to bring FDIC-insured bank real estate lending to the cannabis industry. Murray says to date, they've acquired over $150 million in assets. OIG is continuing to build its portfolio, hoping to help BIPOC communities build generational wealth. 2019, he founded Rosemary Jane, a cannabis retailer, fighting for freedom and women empowerment. As a social equity outfit, RMJ was built to bring uh, literal and economic freedom to the cannabis industry. Founded to support stories of black and brown people affected by criminal justice system over, over nonviolent cannabis-related offenses like the like that of the company's social justice, justice impact consultant, Evelyn LaChapelle, who Murray describes as their heart and soul. Murray says his goal uh, once he learned the game was to not only build Black-owned firm, uh, but create pathways and opportunities for other aspiring commercial real estate brokers, developers, etc. And I'm here for all of that shit. My good friend Kristen Yoder got a, a t-shirt company with some funny-ass quotes and phrases tied to the legacy cannabis industry. Out of respect for our sponsors, I won't give her a free plug today, even though I'd personally recommend this shit. It's dope. Uh, one of the t-shirts messaging uh, reads, friends don't let friends buy corporate cannabis. I've joked with her. Uh, I'm getting mine customized with an asterisk in fine print adding, except when you're black. Black people aren't afforded the same opportunities in mainstream America to build the wealth needed to even fight against corporate weed, let alone become a successful independent shop without ties to corporate interests. So even though it's bittersweet seeing social equity orgs get their licensing, BIPOC firms making their way into mainstream news, knowing that they're most likely backed by the chads, I'll still support every single one of them every single time. Jackie Robinson's known to many as the first black major, uh, major league baseball player and one of the greatest ever to play. What's mostly forgotten is all the racist bullshit he went through on his road to revolutionizing a white man's game. If corporate cannabis is the next American pastime prime for us to dominate, I'm cool with that. Generations of black communities will benefit from pennies of, uh, of the dollars owed siphoned off these corporate giants. Maybe Eric Murray will one day be seen as a corporate cannabis. Jackie Robinson, who changed the game for base, uh, of baseball forever. Just know, personally, I prefer stickball. This is Rico Lamite, dope dad south of the border. This week in these Mexican streets for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear y'all hear y'all's thoughts on this one. And I hope I wasn't so robot this time. Thank you for the story, Rico. This is so wonderful to hear because once upon a time, as late as the early 1900s, um, African-Americans owned 14% of the farmland in this country. And over the next years, we were killed, swindled, lynched. Um, tricked out of the land now it's down to about one percent so i am so grateful for this uh story right and i wish him and his team the best and um all the brothers and sisters looking to get in here even if you're a corporate sellout like i once was good luck with everything i have a question and uh so if a person of color takes a business deal with one of these um, you know, large MSOs, where does that stand as far as where, where our, um, do, do we change our opinion about them? Like when the MSOs actually start to bring people of color on, even if they're kind of doing it as a, a ploy, it, if the opportunity is arising where the people of color are still getting their opportunity at generational wealth, is that now okay? Or is, are, are we still mad at, well, like, if you're... That, that, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my whole stance on this. It's, it's a complicated issue, like I'm totally complicated because, you know, I don't smoke corporate weed, but I will. I do go over to Whitney Beatty's shop, but I do go over to, um, uh, to Keith Keith's shop over here. And like knowing they're backed by corporate interests to support them. That's the only path that we have into this industry. And um, if you choose to play the legal game, like it's, it's just a path you might just have to take. The only thing that's hard is that, honestly, it's hard sometimes to know who is corporate weed and who's not. Well, money. 
<laughs> you can generally tell by the booth on the shelf. <laughs> um, all right. Well, up next, we have Miss Priscilla Agoncillo. Priscilla is voted one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history. And she's also the CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League. What do you have for us today, Priscilla? Thanks, Nicole. Uh, so my story is transformer explosions caused by excessive electricity usage tipped off Oregon police to a multi-state cannabis ring. Law enforcement raided 25 Oregon residences. The U.S. Attorney's Office for Oregon announced Friday the indictment of Fayao or Paul Wrong, a 51-year-old Houston man on two counts of conspiracy to manufacture and possess cannabis with intent to distribute. The wrong organization takedown followed a 14-month investigation by Oregon State Police initiated after the agency learned of excessive electricity use at various properties, which in several instances resulted in transformer explosions. Investigators believe that in a 12-month period... Uh, beginning of August of 2020, Rong trafficked more than $13.2 million in black market cannabis. Rong purchased numerous houses in Oregon, which he converted to indoor cannabis operations. And it led to an organization, an organization that grew, harvested, and transported cannabis to states where the possession is not legal. The DEA executed search warrants on 25 uh, of the residences, as well as Rong's home in Houston. They seized more than 33,000 plants, 1,800 pounds of packaged packaged cannabis, and nearly 600000 in cash. They also uh, seized 16 properties worth $6.5 million where they grew cannabis. Uh, law enforcement arrested Rong in Houston, and he faces a life in prison if he's convicted. There was more than a dozen law enforcement agencies um, between local, state, and federal that assisted in this case. It was the Portland Police Bureau, including the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, and Homeland Security were involved. So I think there was a lot more to this than just cannabis uh, cannabis operation. Um, I'd love to hear what Chris Egger says, but he is facing life in prison. So this is Priscilla reporting for the SOC News Hour. It's a big deal when all those agencies get involved. So um, that'll be one to follow for sure. Really good story. Um, interesting to see how that'll shake out. Yeah, I mean, when when they're because we've seen busts where you know the numbers are so much higher with what they've seized, with what the operations were in size. Why? Would you suspect there are so many agencies involved in this particular one? Is it just because it's from Houston to Oregon? Yeah, potentially, potentially that. But also, honestly, it could just be the appetite of a particular agency and their current bandwidth. I mean, um, I've seen that happen before, too, where marshals get involved for something that's like, why are they why are they around? You know, and, and it might just be because they have you know, um, time or the bandwidth to deal with it. So it's really hard to say on the surface value exactly why so many agencies are involved on this one. Well, Oregon said that they were bringing in the National Guard in 2022. So maybe they needed something for them to do. But come on, man, you blow up a transformer, you pack your shit up and move. These guys blew up multiple transformers. It's crazy. This is happening in a lot of uh, states that have a very poor grid. Um, Oklahoma was happening, Oregon it was happening, um, places that were not prepared for the level of power um, in these you know industrial blocks that they're they're now being forced to provide. This is not gonna stop um, and you know it'll be regulated cannabis that's doing it too. And when you've got millions of dollars and you blow up the fucking transformer and all your plants are dying, what are you gonna do then? You're going to sue this, the state or the infrastructure bill, or I don't, I don't really know. Well, another thing is he's facing life in prison, right? That's crazy. Right? Why? Why life? Exactly. That's what I was wondering when I read it. Wild. It's called the statute of limitations, or excuse me, not the statute of limitations. It's basically the 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 minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines. Because of the amount, or because they were going. Across state lines, or for what because, reason? Because, because they the, blew up a transformer? Because of the nature of the crime. Uh, it's definitely a story to follow. I think there's more to it. So I'll keep y'all posted. Yeah. I agree. Rico, are you pausing or are you robotic? Megatron blew up lots of uh, transformers. It, I mean, electricity. Be robotting, but uh, Megatron blew up multiple transformers and he was never prosecuted. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't get life in prison, you mean? Fuck. <laughs> All right. Nope, uh, went back to the moon i think we're at time on that headline 
And I think Mar- uh, Rico's on his fifth margarita. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go ahead and introduce Mr. Jason Beck. The I'm longest- a transformer now. The longest-running retailer in U.S. cannabis history, the highest member of the GOP, and the industry's very own Kaiser Brose. What do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, good morning, Nicole. Hope everyone's having a fantastic Monday. But I'll tell you what, the people in Arizona I don't think are having as an amazing day because they're asking themselves, do we need stricter packaging regulations for cannabis products in Arizona? The Arizona Poison Poison and Drug Information Center and Banner Poison Control Center recently reported a 90% increase in pediatric calls related to cannabis. This follows Arizona's first full year of cannabis legalization. According, according to Proposition 20, laws have been put in place with the purpose of reducing appeal to children. According to the Arizona law, a marijuana establishment may not the following one, two, three things. Number one, package or label marijuana or marijuana products in a false or misleading manner. Two, manufacture or sell marijuana products that resemble the form of a human, animal, insect, fruit, toy, or cartoon. And three, sell or advertise marijuana on or marijuana products with names that resemble or imitate food or drink brands marketed to children or otherwise advertise marijuana or marijuana products to children. And with that said, the Smart and Safe Act also addresses child-resistant packaging as necessary. So in theory, the legislation should be enough to keep young children from overdosing. However, the clinical toxicologist director of Arizona Poison and Drug Information Center, Dr. Stephen Dudley, Farm D. uh, Diabet, points out the majority of accidental consumption involved edibles that look like typical candy and snacks. Many of the accidental ingestions that we hear about involve little kids getting into edible marijuana products that look like candy or other snacks, he shared. Learning about safe storage can can save parents a ton of grief and prevent a trip to the hospital. When compared to other states, Arizona's safety regulations are pretty much on par with them, such as California's extensive labeling requirements. The passage of Proposition 20 also limited the amount of THC milligrams in an edible package and serving may have at at 100 milligrams with 10 milligram portions, respectively. This mirrors other states' limitations as well, similar to California. Thus, the question remains, do we need stricter packaging regulations for cannabis products? Well, I'll tell you what. I say no because all this this, uh, story all makes me think of is boys in the hood. And in my Ice Cube vote, Ice Cube voice, I have to say, Brenda, keep them goddamn babies out the street. And so parents, keep the fucking edibles out of your children's reach. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And in the meantime, Arby's just released a French fry vodka. How is that okay? Sonic just released their own seltzers. Are edibles in body? In in general, are edibles in less secure packaging than flour and vape pens? Typically, the the products that children get into are off-market, are not legally registered products, and that's the problem. And the more packaging restrictions we put on legal cannabis, the more, um, you know, traditional market or unregulated market cannabis will flourish. And packaging regulations are just plain a problem for people who have actual arthritis or mental problems who actually need the cannabis and can't get into the damn product. Arizona did uh, not require the opacity in their original regulations, which state of California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, uh, all does the opacity requiring that you're not able to see the product that's within the container from the outside, which I think is very advantageous, especially considering some of these things look exceptionally yummy i mean that's this this story is just just crazy to me parents need to keep the edibles out of their children's hands and i don't even know many trappers that would sell edibles to kids in the first place and so this is definitely happening because of parents uh misuse or misplacement of these products and I just wanted to hop on here. Um, so I recently, well, the past year, I moved to Arizona. And majority of the brands that are here, they already incorporated themselves. They already do have um, better packaging requirements. So they don't even have to, I don't know. I, this whole story is just interesting to me. But from the brands that I know, they're already incorporating uh, child-resistant packaging. We've got Sam up from the audience. We're about time. Uh, Sam, but did you want to weigh in on this headline? 
these don't make the packaging harder. I have arthritis at 29 and I can barely get these childproof things open. Like, just keep it out of reach of your kids or put it in a safe place. Like, let's just be real. Those of us with medical conditions, it's hard as shit to open those things already. Please don't make it worse. Also, too, one thing that I've noticed, uh, just speaking on Sam's point, that I've noticed with uh, people that have a very hard time opening these childproof uh, edible containers is a lot of times they'll just cut that whole tamper-resistant childproof packaging off the top of the thing and just leave it open. uh, So that way they can easily access it, which would also exacerbate this problem. Totally defeats the purpose altogether. (laughs) Great point, Sam. I've seen people smash those Petrament tins open. I do that all the time, but I don't have kids, so I don't have to worry about like kids reaching my stuff but it i just can't open like the childproof tin cans the moment i get them open i have to transfer them to just like a regular ziploc baggie because i can't open them a second time all right well we are past the half hour point so we're gonna go ahead and relight the room you are tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour your daily dose the thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Want to learn how to generate a high income in the explosive business of cannabis? Get all of the details and winning strategies developed from 20 years in the game. This one-of-a-kind book is filled with dozens of personal business deals, insider stories, and invaluable lessons. The Business of Cannabis, A Blueprint to High Income by Gerald, Jared Kesselman finally reveals this elusive industry from the inside and teaches how you can create a profitable business that you love. Get it now on Amazon. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Well, up next, we have Miss Adelia Carrillo. Adelia is the CMO of Event High, the advisor of the ICBWA, and the co-founder of Blunt Brunch. What do you have for us today, Adelia? Hello, everyone. Uh, So today's article is called Hazel Park Lounge Could Be Michigan's First Legal Pot Smoking Establishment. So the article begins to state that a taste of the Netherlands is expected to soon come to John R. in Hazel Park, uh, where one of Michigan's first uh, cannabis consumption lounges is working to get the necessary approvals to open. Uh, In Michigan, you have Hazel Park and you have Kalkowska. Uh, These are the first cities in Michigan that are prospective cannabis lounge sites uh, that have actually already have businesses who've stated, um, who have submitted for state licenses. And this was reported from the Cranes Detroit Business Reports. Uh, One of those businesses is called the Hotbox Social. The business is in line to become the first in Michigan where smoking cannabis at a business is legal. It submitted application materials in January and is waiting on some changes, but it could potentially receive a a consumption establishment establishment license and start operating very soon. A few things to note. Uh, You won't be able to choose from a cannabis menu like you can at other weed uh, hangout establishments. Uh, So it'll be BYOC. The workaround is you can buy product at a nearby retail establishment and bring it yourself, or you can get them delivered um, to the site. So delivery is allowed. Now, on top of that, nearly 300 Michigan municipalities reportedly have approved ordinances allowing for the establishments. And currently in Michigan, Hazel Park has no park limit or has no local limits on consumption lounges that have been recorded by the state. While Ferndale and Warren have banned them, Highland Park allows for three. And Detroit, if its proposed recreational cannabis ordinance passes, will allow 35 consumption lounges to operate in its borders. Um, I'm excited to continue to see this discussion happen. We are now in almost 10 states that are allowing uh, cannabis lounges, and hopefully it'll continue to grow. Um, This is Adelia Crillo, and I am reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I want there to be consumption lounges everywhere, at least one for every two bar, but I don't understand how you could possibly make this work if you can't sell cannabis. I mean, can you imagine having a bar where you can't sell alcohol and you have to bring your own? It, it, I don't know how it works. That would be the best bar. <laughs> but they wouldn't make any I money. 
especially how a lot of, um, you know, hotels and other places don't allow it. I mean, I think that these, these lounges are necessary for people to have a safe place to be able to smoke. I think it could and very well be in a partnership with several dispensaries um, locally. Um, you know, the way that Michigan kind of exists is the little, like, hubs of play of of people and then like you know 100 miles before you get to another city um i think that a few dispensaries could in theory you know chip in together and have a, a lounge that allowed for you know maybe discounts if you did the delivery the delivery service being such an open option there in michigan um i, I think that it is doable not super profitable but i think in more than anything it's just giving your tourists a place to go and also the you know the local community a place to hang out and in a lot of these places, people would pay just to kick it and smoke their own cigars. Why won't they kick it to smoke their own weed? So it's like that store in the mall in Northern California where they're just displaying empty packaging. It's just in, uh, a marketing tool. Inverse of that, maybe, where you would be, you know, not displaying any packaging and just being like, here's some menus, order whatever you want. I mean, more and more, especially when you were seeing COVID, um, when they had the restaurant situation where you could be open if you were a restaurant, but not if you were just a bar. So people were like partnering with restaurants nearby to sell their food um, in the establishment. Really expensive smoothies and snacks. The Claridan here is a hotel here in Arizona, and they actually have like a membership lounge. They built a lounge downstairs, and it's it's exactly the same thing. Bring your own cannabis, but they have a bunch of stuff that you can do there. So you do pay a fee, but you're just paying a fee for like be to be able to watch their movies or play games or use. You can use their devices too, which again, I'm not too sure how safe that is with COVID, but yeah. How much is their fee, Adelia? I will ask them. I actually don't know. I'll find out though. I used to manage a cigar lounge that had a public lounge as well as the private lounge. And the private lounge charged $400 per month and people paid it like clockwork to house it in our humidors. Um, I think we're at time on that. So Dr. Felicia, uh, Plants for Life, CEO and dual board certified physician, helping people understand how much power they have over their health using cannabis as medicine. What do you have for us today, Dr. Felicia? Thank you so much, Nicole. Happy Monday, everyone. My story comes from NPR station WABE. A new push at the state capitol to get Georgia's medical cannabis program on track by Rahul Ball. There could be hope for thousands of patients waiting to get the legal access to medical cannabis oil grown in Georgia. A bill filed Thursday at the state capitol is meant to unjam the Georgia Access to Medical Cannabis Commission. In July, the Georgia Access to Medical Cannabis Commission awarded six licenses to companies to grow and manufacture low THC oil. Those were formally protested by 16 other bidders. Republican State Representative Alan Powell of Hartwell says House Bill 1400 would grant licenses to those 16. We would have to take care of the 16 and give a license of some sort, just one, not multiple, Powell said, if that is the will of the Georgia Assembly to do that. That speeds up and gets it out of the court system and moves it forward. Powell's bill would bring the total number of licenses to 22. Otherwise, Powell is concerned that the protests and legal action could mean the state's low TAC oil program could be legally tied up for years. Powell is confident that his bill would not lead to new lawsuits. The six that have been tentatively approved, a lot of those have already made investments in land and property, buildings and whatever, getting into moving to preparation, Powell said. I am told it could probably be on the ground and up and running by the end of the year. Powell says the bill puts more of the process in the open under the, the Georgia Opens Records Act. House Bill 1400 also gets rid of the Medical Cannabis Commission Oversight Committee. That committee includes appointees from the governor, the House Speaker, and Lieutenant Governor. The news committee would consist of members of the State House and State Senate Regulatory, I'm sorry, Regulated Industries Committee. Powell chairs the House Regulated Industries Committee, which is where his bill has been assigned. I, too, am frustrated. The first version of Georgia's medical cannabis legislation was signed into law in 2015, just one year after Florida signed theirs. Yet Florida has 400 dispensaries and Georgia still has zero. This is Dr. Felicia Dawson for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What do you all think? 
I think Justin Bieber needs to go to Georgia and sell his peaches. Oh, my God. I, I think. Oh, God. We've given him. I totally too, saw that one coming, Susan. I know. We've given him too much press on that shit already. Um, but I, I honestly think that the idea that six was going to be enough is kind of absurd to begin with. Um, but also the low dose bill, I think, needs to be uh, changed also because it's just it's just more of the same bullshit over and over again. And us separating out the, these plants as if they're not the same fuck plant yeah the th um limit is five percent for georgia um the this 2022 legislative uh, session concludes on april 4 so i hope that they can get something done and clear at least one of these clouds from over georgia because we got quite a few you technically don't have any clouds or if you do it's just clouds of mids oh there's plenty of clouds and you know what i'm talking about how can they, how can, I mean, are they not selling flour? Oh, no, no. You, the only, the only no. thing that when this gets up and running that will be available in Georgia is cannabis oil with a top level of 5% TAC. That's it. That is it. No smoking. You can't smoke it. Nothing. Just 5% CBD, uh, CBD low TAC oil. This is what I mean about lab testing across the states and stuff. Like, if they can't even agree on this kind of stuff, like, how are we going to agree on anything else? All right. Well, up next, we have Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith is the communications strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. What do you have for us today, Christopher? Uh, Good morning, Nicole. Thank you. Good morning, Rico in Mexico. Good morning, Susan. Uh, My headline today is Maricopa Community Colleges get $17.1 million from cannabis tax in first year of legality. So the state of Arizona is on a roll during its first year. It took in the state took in more than 215 million dollars in combined taxes of both adult use and medical uh, marijuana. All that tax money is good news for Maricopa County, which is the county around Phoenix and Scottsdale. Maricopa County Community College District received 17.1 million dollars from the state cannabis excise tax. The district said it's earmarked 7.6 million dollars of the funds toward 35 career specific training. Programs programs with focuses including beauty and wellness, healthcare, and trades and technology. The district said that community colleges get the most funding uh, uh, from the tax at 33%. So the other big cannabis story is California, of course. Uh, the cannabis tax story is California. So small farmers are begging for cultivation taxes to be lowered. Humboldt County has already reduced a key tax, and we're waiting to hear what Governor Gavin Newsom does. Considering the state already jacks about a billion dollars a year from cannabis businesses and keeps the taxes so high that generally that the illicit market is reportedly larger than the, illi- than the legal market, And then there's this weird twist that was reported by Jason last week, as reported by NBC News, Jim Keddy, executive director of the advocacy organization Youth Forward, and others have warned Gavin Newsom in a letter that if the industry is successful in persuading state leaders to lower, suspend, or eliminate the tax rates approved by voters, in Prop 64, we will see an immediate negative impact on thousands of children living in poverty and children of color across our state. So this really sucks. Who wants to choose between hurting kids and hurting farmers? But I say, is that the only choice? So remember when I said that Maricopa County, 33% of the tax revenue goes to community colleges? Well, according to the 2020 study by the Public Health Institute, in California, under Prop 64, new revenues such as those from cannabis go into the general fund and end up heavily benefiting the police. On average, they studied 28 cities and police spending represented 39% of general fund spending. So it's, it's something like this. Uh, that's the average, by the way. The cannabis tax money goes to police smells like this. 62% of, uh, of the tax money goes to police in Cloverdale in, so- in Sonoma County. 59% goes to the police in Woodlake and Tulare County, and it goes on. Between 2016 and 20, 23 of the 28 cities we researched experienced double-digit increases in the amount of general funds going to the police, average of 19% increase, over $455 million more in general fund dollars spent on police than just three years earlier. 
So in my mind, the solution for is not for children or against farmers. It's against the most bloated, hammer-striking, anti-vaxxing, white supremacist organization of all, the police. And if you're butthurt because I said white supremacists, here's another quote from the Public Health Institute. Plus, while the enforcement of cannabis laws has always been concentrated within communities of color, it has become even more so in recent years. People of color represented 68% of cannabis arrests in 2013, but five years later, it had written to 70%. Five percent, and and all that with fewer cannabis arrests in total. These problems are much bigger than taxes, and I'm done. You are well done. Thank you, Christopher, for uh, looping that around. Yeah, police budgets are so ridiculous. When I got arrested in Redondo Beach, one of the most racist towns in California, um, I found out that over 43% of the city's budget went to law enforcement, and the uh, city council member that I had lunch with was not aware, and that doesn't include um, asset forfeiture. We've got nothing else for Christopher's headline. Thank you for that one. Um, and we'll go ahead and hop to our next correspondent, Shalina Panu, founder of the law offices of Shalina Panu, focusing on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Also, the founder of Shall We Toke. What do you have for us today, Shalina? Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Has COVID Destroyed Cannabis Coffee Shops in Amsterdam? Before the pandemic, cannabis coffee shops in Amsterdam were normally full. However, shops in the center of the city that drew the most tourism have suffered due to the lack of entry into Amsterdam because of COVID. The main reason these shops have been able to survive since COVID is due to takeout demands by locals, as well as government financial aid, which covered rent and furlough for staff. When COVID overtook all of Europe, the Dutch government put a strict lockdown, which ordered all hospitality to close, including these shops. Interesting to note, they immediately reversed this decision once people started buying cannabis illegally. As such, they instead allowed for the shops to stay open and allowed for takeout only, even during the strictest lockdown measures in place. What they realized was that it's usually only tourists who consume cannabis in the coffee shops. Locals, on the other hand, treat the shops more like a dispensary where they purchase it inside the shop and then smoke elsewhere. Although the shops themselves are mainly empty due to lack of tourism, the demand for cannabis has skyrocketed and continues to do so. In a Dutch survey, 41% of over 1,500 respondents said they were using cannabis more since the start of the pandemic. 49% said they were smoking as much as they were before. Since the lockdown measures, three-fourths were using cannabis almost daily. Residential areas had a heavy increase in demand, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic when most people were stocking up in case the shops closed. The main reason why they were choosing to consume was out of stress, loneliness, and boredom. Also a plus for the cannabis shops is that when purchasing to go, people tend to buy more than if they stayed at the shop to consume. Even though the lockdown is over, the strict regulations are still in place regarding COVID safety, such as requiring vaccine passes and keeping distance between customers. Further, shops must close by 10 p.m. However, takeout is open till midnight. This makes accommodating large groups and encouraging people to stay inside a bit difficult. The initial concept of Amsterdam's cannabis coffee shops was to provide a relaxed culture and vibe, which drew in tourists from all over the world. A big future concern for these shops is a possible forced tourist ban proposed by the mayor that allows only locals to use these shops in the hopes of controlling the supply chain and making tourism in the city, especially in the red light district, much more manageable. Some are concerned that the illegal market will continue to thrive if they do this, just like when the first restrictions were put in place. Although the large crowds have dispersed, Amsterdam wants the world to know that they are open again for business. Their whole foundation of these shops is to provide a place for people to consume cannabis responsibly and safely, and at the same time meet people from all over the world. What are your thoughts on Amsterdam's possible tourist ban on cannabis coffee shops? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. So when the red light district reopened their um, their uh, sex uh, work, they had rules against the specific positions. You couldn't do missionary, and um, you could only do uh, doggy style and reverse cowgirl. It was literally on the signs. All right, <laughs> I have never been to Amsterdam, but wow! How come there's no sideways cowgirl? I'm not side saddle. Oh, the, the best part is like I saw someone stiff one of the one of the hookers in Amsterdam, and then she just as he was running out the front door, she grabbed a bucket of water and doused his ass with it. 
Don't say stiffed. All right. <laughs> Stiffies. Uh, we're going to keep moving. So I'm going to close out with my story today and bring up the church music because a Roman Catholic church in Syracuse, New York, filed a lawsuit claiming that the smell of cannabis smoke has, quote, infiltrated the inside of the church and is affecting the friars. They're all men, by the way. My headline comes from Newsweek, and it's Catholic Church filed lawsuit over permeating odor of cannabis smoke by Samantha Berlin. The lawsuit claimed that an illegal marijuana market and a mix of live music events led to an intense odor that entered the building where the friars resided. New York State passed the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, and that marijuana is with an H. What the H? Which legalized adult use cannabis. It is only legal for licensed medical marijuana dispensaries to sell marijuana containing greater than 0.3% THC, the psychoactive compound in cannabis. While the state must grant licenses, no individuals are able to apply for a retail dispensary license until all regulations in the MRTA are finalized. In the lawsuit, Assumption Church claimed that the live music venue, I love this name, Alien Opera House, did not have the necessary license to dispense medical marijuana. The complaint also states that Alien Opera House often hosts shows that go until 2 a.m. or later, which interfered with the friars' right to peaceful enjoyment. Quote, such concerts feature excessive noise and are extremely disruptive to the assumption, and in particular, the friars residing in the friary, the complaint read. Cease and desist letters went out and were promptly ignored, but after the lawsuit was filed, Alien Opera House canceled future planned events. Although it's illegal to sell marijuana in the state of New York, Syracuse police are not arresting people for marijuana-based offenses, and the county district attorney's office is not prosecuting people. Those damn friars don't want to get high. They don't want to smell it. I just, I just have to say in, in regards with this, um, uh, all of, I'm surprised that we're not going to see more of, uh, similar of these lawsuits, especially with uh, vegans uh, protesting meat restaurants for the same type of odoriferous emanation. Whoa, meat's a nuisance? Meat smell? Why, why, why wouldn't it be? Because they're, they're, they're protesting terpenes, and so therefore if people aren't happy with certain terpene smells, then that's what they're basically are following this lawsuit on. Right, right, got it. Cracking the dam. Could be bad. All right. Well, we've reached the top of the hour. It was an interesting day. Um, If you missed any of the show, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show, anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines every day to bring us just what we need to know. And thank you, Nicole and Rico, for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.